Hello and welcome to this brand new episode of Folklore, Food and Fairy Tales. It's the first episode in our third series. I can't believe we've got here. Also, did you know it's our birthday? Folklore, Food and Fairy Tales first came out on the 1st of September 2020. I know it's the 31st of August, but you know, it's pretty much his birthday. In order to celebrate the birthday of the podcast, I've done a series of interviews with some really wonderful storytellers. And I've released those as bonus episodes. So there's going to be one a week for the next five weeks, starting with today. If you subscribe to the podcast, you should have received it in your downloads with this one. But if you don't, you can go on to wherever you get your podcasts and it should be there, sitting, waiting, ready for your attention. I thought we should probably celebrate just a little bit in this main episode as well. So we haven't got one story, we've got two stories. Two stories that are very different but they do both have dumplings in, so I've decided that's reason enough. The first story is The Thirteen Bandits, by, or collected by at least, Giuseppe Pietre in his Sicilian Folk and Fairy Tales. The second story is The Apple Dumpling, from The Storyteller by Maud Lindsay. The rest of the episode will proceed as normal, and the first we'll talk about the story itself, a little bit about the folklore of dumplings and the history of dumplings. It's all going to be a little bit longer than normal, but I hope you really enjoy it. Are you listening comfortably? Then I'll begin. Once upon a time, there was a teacher who had 12 students, and she instructed them how to sew in all sorts of ways. They could mend, they could design, they could embroider... The entrance of the teacher's house was inside the city and the windows faced outside. One day she said to the young maidens, If you hurry up and sew a lot, I'll make you a beautiful dinner with dumplings this Sunday. The maidens worked hard at their sewing and on Sunday there was a fine lunch of dumplings. Thin sheets of silky pasta filled with sautéed greens, cacio cavallo cheese and dried chilli finished with a first press of extra virgin olive oil. They ate and amused themselves and by some miracle, there were some dumplings left over for the evening. And the maiden said to their teacher, This evening we'll stay with you, my lady, and later on we'll heat up the rest of the dumplings. I have enough beds for all of you, the teacher said. I'm going to sleep, and you can all enjoy yourselves. Now, among the maidens, there was a daughter of a merchant who was truly mischievous. That night she went to heat up the dumplings, and she saw a light from the window, while she and her companions were in the darkness. She turned to the others and said, Listen to me, girls. I want you to tie the sheet around my waist and lower me out of the window and I'll go and see where the light is coming from. They lowered her and she ran toward the light. When she reached the light, she saw an open door and cried out, Anyone here? She didn't see anyone, but she tore a table set for 12 people. Then she entered the kitchen and smelled the most amazing smell. Everything was so delicious and beautiful. There were aranzini and pulpatini and melting prosciutto and cheese fritters. Veal brujol, stuffers and duja, raisins and pine nuts. Tripe cooked ragusa style with aubergine, hazelnuts, almonds and pecorino and stuffed aubergines with pork and pine nuts, rice and ricotta. Even some sweet and sour peppers and caponata and some baked pumpkin with ricotta, sage, chilli and lemon. There was Swiss charred gratin with ricotta, mascarpone and pine nuts. The maiden scooped up a big basket, took all the food and carried it away. But, guess what? This place belonged to 12 bandits. But they weren't there, and she managed to return safely to the teacher's house. 
Now there's a sheet and pull me up, she said. And when she came back into the room, she knelt down and let out all the food so that they could eat and have a good time. Meanwhile, the teacher slept. When they became tired, they also went to sleep. Later, the bandits returned, and when they entered the house, they saw there was nothing there from their wonderful, beautiful feast, and cried out, My God, some thieves have come and stolen from us. But tomorrow evening, we'll see who's causing all this trouble here. The next day, the teacher saw the maidens talking among themselves and said, What's going on, girls? My lady, they responded, we must be quiet, for we want to marry. And in the evening, they said, My lady, we want to spend the night here, and began to play. Meanwhile, the bandits prepared their meal, and the chief of the bandits began to eat. At the same time, the youngest maiden had herself lowered down by her companions and ran to the palace. Is there anyone here? she cried out. No one responded, but the chief of the bandits had hidden himself to see who it was, a man or a woman. He saw the maiden enter the kitchen and scoop up the casserole of rabbit, cooked in wine with herbs, olives, almonds, tomatoes, onions and potatoes. It wasn't quite what they were used to, but she had stolen the rest of the feast from the night before. Just as she was about to leave, the bandit appeared and said, Ah, you little rascal, this is the second time and I've got you now. Who are you? the maiden said. I needed some light last night and I came here before going to sleep. But what was I to do? Listen, we're twelve maidens and you're twelve too. Tomorrow evening I'll come with all of them and we'll amuse ourselves. As she left, he accompanied her and said, Give me your word that you'll come back tomorrow evening. I give you my word, she said, and ran to her companions. After she climbed through the window, she told her friends what had happened. But, sister, why did you tell them we'd come? That'll be our ruin. Not at all, girls. Let me take care of things. Tomorrow evening, you'll come with me and we will amuse ourselves. The next day, she said to the teacher, This evening you must come with us and I'll show you such a good time. But each one of us must bring a bottle of wine that's drugged. The teacher went about her sewing and did some other things. She was a little bit concerned. But in the evening, she went out with the maidens. She didn't like to think of them going alone. Anyone here? The maiden cried out as they entered the palace of the thieves. Good evening. They found a table for 26 people. I'm going to take the bandit chief, said the maiden. She's the one he desired. They sat down at the table and began to eat. And after a while, they took out the bottles that were drugged. And after the glasses were filled, they began to drink. When the maiden saw they passed out, she cut off the nose of one bandit, the lip of another, and the finger of another. And she put them on a dish. She was now content, and she and her companions took them and left. Now, let's return to the bandits. When they recovered from being drugged, they began to talk. How curious, you're missing a nose, and you're missing a lip, and you don't have a finger. They broke into a rage, and the chief turned to them and said, let me take care of this. I'm going to get that mischief maker's blood. Well, let's get back to the maiden. The next day, the maiden said to the teacher, my lady, I think you must leave this house. And the teacher did as she was told. In the meantime, the bandit chief took 12 coal sacks and he had 12 bandits get inside them. He placed pieces of coal on top of them, so they looked like they were full of coal. Then he disguised himself and went on the road towards Palermo. When he got to the merchant's shop, he offered the 12 sacks of coal to him at an amazing price. And the merchant, he couldn't, he just couldn't leave them after he'd weighed them and they were so cheap. Now, the daughter of this merchant was the mischievous girl who had been with the teacher and had cut off the nose of the thieves. When she saw the sacks of coal, she was deeply suspicious and said to her father, Papa, these sacks are not filled with coal. Let me take care of this. She called the servant and they made a good fire and they heated up the kitchen spits. As soon as the spits were hot enough, 
The maiden took the spits and stuck them in hard into the twelve sacks, killing all the bandits. The next day, the chief waited for the twelve bandits to return with their prize, but he had to keep waiting. Meanwhile, when the father of the mischievous maiden went to the kitchen, there was a terrible smell, and his daughter said to him, Father, don't fuss, but I'm going to show you something. She called the servant, who took the sacks and opened them. Both her father and the servant were astounded. In turn, the father called for the police and told them what had happened. The police ordered his men to carry off the dead bandits, and they went to arrest the chief at his house. The maiden was toasted and celebrated, and the chief was arrested. And after he was flogged, he was killed. Are you ready for our next tale? Then I'll carry on. There was once upon a time, in a land far away and long ago, an old woman who wanted an apple dumpling for supper. She had plenty of flour, and plenty of butter, and plenty of sugar, and plenty of spice to make a dozen dumplings. But there was one thing she did not have, and that was an apple. She had plums, a tree full of them, the roundest and the reddest you can imagine. But though you can make butter from cream and raisins of grapes, you cannot make an apple dumpling with plums, and there is no use trying. The more the old woman thought of the dumpling, the more she wanted it, and at last she dressed herself in her Sunday best and she started out to seek an apple. Before she left home, however, she filled a basket with plums from her plum tree, and covering it with a white cloth, hung it on her arm, and she said to herself, for there might be those in the world who have got apples, but need plums. So she hadn't gone very far when she came to a poultry yard filled with fine hens and geese and guinea fowl, making such a racket you can never imagine. And in the midst of them stood a young woman who was feeding them with yellow corn. She nodded pleasantly to the old woman, and the old woman nodded to her, and as soon they were talking as if they'd known each other for always. The young woman told the old woman about her fowls, and the old woman told the young woman about the dumpling and the basket of plums for which she hoped to get apples. Dear me, said the young woman, there's nothing my husband likes better than plum jelly with goose for his Sunday dinner. But unless you're going to take this bag of feathers for your plums, he's going to have to do without, because that's the best I can offer you. Well, only one person, please, is better than two disappointed, said the old woman, and she emptied the plums into the young woman's apron and, putting the bag of feathers into her basket, trudged on as merrily as before. For she said to herself, if I'm no nearer the dumpling than when I left home, I'm at least no further from it, and the feathers are much lighter to carry than the plums. So trudged up the hill she went, and up more hills and then down, and presently she came to a garden of sweet flowers. Lilies, lilacs, violets, roses. There never was a more lovely garden. The old woman stopped at the gate to look at the flowers, and as she looked, she heard a man and a woman who sat on the doorstep of a house that stood in the garden quarrelling. Cotton, said the woman. Straw, said the man. Tis not. It is, they cried, and so it went between them till they spied the old woman at the gate. Here's going to want who's going to settle the matter, said the woman, and called to the old woman. Good mother. Answer me this. If you were making a cushion for your grandfather's chair, wouldn't you stuff it with cotton? No, said the old woman. Told you so, cried the man. Straw is the thing, and you need to go no further than the barn for it. But the old woman shook her head. I wouldn't stuff the cushion with straw, she said. And it would have been hard to tell which one was more cast down by her answers, the man or the woman. But the old woman made haste to take the bag of feathers out of her basket and give it to them. A feather cushion is fit for a king, she said. And as for me, an apple for a dumpling or a bouquet from your garden will serve me as well as what I've given you. The man and the woman had no apples, but they were glad to exchange a bouquet from their garden for a bag of fine feathers, you might be sure. There's nothing nicer for a cushion than feathers, said the woman. 
My mother had one made of them, said the man, and they laughed like children as they hurried into the garden to fill the old woman's basket with the loveliest of posies, lilacs, violets and roses. There never was a sweeter bouquet. A good bargain, and not all of it, in the basket, said the old woman, for she was pleased to have stopped the quarrel, and when she had wished the good two of them good fortune and a long life, she went upon her way again. Now her way was the king's highway, and as she walked there she met a young lord, who was dressed in his finest outfit, for he was going to see his lady love. He would have been as handsome a young man as ever the sun had shone upon, had it not been that his forehead was wrinkled into a terrible frown, and the corners of his mouth were drawn down as if he had not a friend left in the whole world. A fair day and a good road, said the old woman, dropping stopping a curtsy. Fair or foul, good or bad, it's all one to me, he said. When the court jeweller had forgotten to send the ring he promised, and I must go to my lady with empty hands. Empty hands are better than an empty heart, said the old woman. But we are young only once, and you should have a gift for your lady, though I may never have an apple dumpling. And she took the bouquet from her basket and gave it to the young lord, which pleased him so much that the frown smoothed away from his forehead and his mouth spread into a smile, and he was as handsome a young man as ever the sun had shone upon. Fair exchange is no robbery, he said, and he unfastened a golden chain from round his neck and gave it to the old woman and went away, holding his bouquet with great care. The woman was delighted. With this gold chain, I might buy all the apples in the king's market, and then I have something to spare, she said, and hurried away towards town as fast as her feet could carry her. But she had gone no further than the turn of the road, when she came upon her mother and children, standing in a doorway, whose faces were as sorrowful as her own was happy. What's the matter? she asked, as soon as she reached them. Matter enough, answered the mother, when the last crust of bread is eaten, and there's not a farthing in the house to buy more. Well, a day, cried the old woman, as this were told her, never shall it be said of me that I eat apple dumpling for supper while my neighbours lack bread, and she put the golden chain to the mother's hands and hurried on without waiting for thanks. She was not out of the sight of the house, though, when the mother and children, everyone laughing and talking as if it was Christmas, overtook her. Little have we to give you, said the mother, who was the happiest of all, for all that you have done for us, but here is a little dog whose barking will keep loneliness from your house, and a blessing goes with it. The woman didn't have the heart to say no, so into the basket went the little dog, and very snugly he lay there. A bag of feathers for a basket of plums, a bouquet of flowers for a bag of feathers, a golden chain for a bouquet of flowers, a dog and a blessing for a golden chain. All the world is give and take, and who knows, but I might have my apple yet, said the old woman as she hurried on. And sure enough, she had not gone half a dozen yards when, right before her, she saw an apple tree as full of apples as her plum tree was full of plums. It grew in front of her house as much like her own, as if the two were peas in the same pot, and on the porch of the house sat a little old man. A fine tree of apples, called the old woman as soon as she was in the speaking distance of him. Oh, but apple trees and apples are poor company when a man is growing old, said the old man, and I would give them all if I even had so much as a little dog to bark on my doorstep. Ruff, 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 called the dog in the old woman's basket, and in less time than it takes to read this story, he was barking on the old man's doorstep, and the old woman was on her way home with a basket of apples on her arm. She got there in plenty of time to make the dumpling for supper, and it was as sweet and brown a dumpling as heart could desire. If you try long and hard enough, you could always have an apple dumpling for supper, said the old woman, and she ate that dumpling to the very last crumb, and enjoyed it too.
And that, gentle listener, is the end of my tale. I hope they please you, for they had no other purpose. So, what did you think? They're two very different tales. As I said, one collected from an oral tradition by a folklorist in the 19th century Sicily in the Sicilian language, and another, a moral tale, almost certainly invented by a woman who founded the first free kindergarten in Tennessee and used this tale in her teaching. As I mentioned at the beginning, what they do have very much in common, though, is dumplings, and that's going to play a huge role in the rest of today's episode. There's a pun here somewhere, but I might be a bit too dumpling-focused at the moment to see it. Until we take a look at our first story, we should take a quick peek at the person who collected it, Giuseppe Pietra. Pietra grew up in Sicily, a doctor by profession, but a folklorist by inclination. He went to the lengths of collecting them in their original Sicilian language, which is possibly why the collection is not as discussed in the English-speaking world as it ought to be. I don't have too much time here to dedicate to Pietra, as there are a lot of conflicting opinions about how much value he brought to folklore. But if you're interested, there are a couple of texts in the suggested reading that might be a good starting off point. So, The Thirteen Bandits. It's got some really interesting and unusual features. The ATU index classifies it as ATU-956B. That's the clever maiden alone at home kills the robbers. This was presumably based on the second part of the story, although it's missing the part which often features in that tale type, where one of the robbers returns disguised to extract his revenge. Another unusual feature is the bold heroine, who is as adventurous as any male protagonist could be, although that is tempered by her very female interest in sewing. As Cicely has such a patriarchal structure, this could be considered surprising, but perhaps they existed to encounter the male domination of every lay life. You can see how women might want to create a fantasy where they gain the upper hand over men. This tale was actually told to Peter by a woman from his home district, who might have felt more comfortable sharing that tale with him due to his familiarity. Did you also notice any similarity to one of the earlier stories I looked at in the first series of the podcast, from A Thousand and One Nights? I thought you might have done. The section of the story with the bandits sounds very similar to the situation that Marjana has to deal with in Alibaba and the Forty Thieves, with the thieves hidden in the oil barrels. There just happens to be less of them. But why does a Sicilian folktale collected from the oral tradition have any passing similarity to an Arabian tale from A Thousand and One Nights? There are a couple of popular theories. The first theory which Petrie agreed with is that Ganon's collection was very popular across Europe and it was a particular popular tale which found its way into the Sicilian tradition. Sebastiano Lonegro in his collection of Sicilian folk tales maintains that both Alibaba and Aladdin and his lamp were introduced to Sicily via an 18th century translation. Italo Calvino agreed with Petra that the French storytellers might have told tales from A Thousand and One Nights in Northern Italy in the 19th century, and that several of the tales he told it was collecting bear the hallmarks of the French version. That might account for sections of stories being adopted and added into traditional tales, which then might form part of the local oral tradition. The second theory, which is perhaps more conjecture, is that individual stories that appear in A Thousand and One Nights can be traced back to the Arab conquest of Sicily in the 9th and 10th centuries, via the oral tradition rather than via the literary tradition. As the stories make up the collection existed separately in the Arab tradition, you can imagine how elements of those tales could have slipped into local tradition. One problem, however, is that recent research confirms beyond all doubt that the tales of Alibaba and Aladdin did not form part of the original manuscript collection, translated by Galland, and originated from the oral tradition, as performed by Hannah, the Syrian storyteller who shared them with Galland. 
There is further information about this theory in the Arabian Nights in Transitional Perspective, which is a fascinating read. The details are, again, in further reading. There are other Sicilian tales that share this element of the Alibaba tale, including Teresa, Trisicchia, the nuns, Libellotti, and Sister Sozizeda, Soru Sozizeda. Teresa also includes a variant where one of the robbers returns, disguised to extract his revenge, to fulfil even more of the requirements of the clever maiden at home kills the robbers. There is another Sicilian tale mentioned by Francesca Maria Carrera in her essay, In and Out of the Arabian Nights, Memories of Oriental Tales and Sicilian Folklore. It is known as Kikiridu, which is the derogatory name of the shepherd protagonist. The name means Little P, and this variant is very similar to the Alibaba tale in A Thousand and One Nights, down to the brother being sewn together by a cobbler and the thieves seeking revenge hidden in oil barrels. This essay also appears in the Arabian Nights in Transnational Perspective. We should also swiftly address how the thieves are represented here. They're not in the slightest bit considered folk heroes. Everyone in the tale is happy to outmanoeuvre them, cheat and even steal from them. They also receive their comeuppance at the end. Sicily was a poor place and did not profit from many of its occupations. Its people suffered from the deprivation of bandits and thieves. So, after all that discussion about our first story, it feels a little unfair that I've got so little to say about the second one. The apple dumpling is very much a moral tale with an unsubtle message. And though it takes various elements from familiar tales in Grimm, it does lack complexity and history. I do like it, however, it's a sweet story and I enjoy the journey and that fixation on that apple dumpling. We've all been there, just maybe not with apple dumplings. I also enjoy putting it next to its older, more complex cousin. Who knew that two tales that start with a desire for dumplings could turn out so differently? Shall we talk more about dumplings now? It is a huge topic. Never let it be said that I'm unafraid to tackle a food subject of which there are hundreds of thousands of variations and recipes across the globe should probably start with a definition and even though that must by its nature be very broad I went to the OED first which wasn't super helpful unless I wanted to restrict my research a little too much they say a kind of pudding consisting of a mass or paste or dough more or less globular in form either plain and boiled or enclosing fruit and boiled or baked originally attributed to Norfolk well that's very much a definition for the English version of the dish and it doesn't even seem to cover it that, that very well. Dumpling was also chosen by English speakers to describe items they didn't have a name for, including the many types of filled dumplings or pastas of Asia and Europe. This has become much more common parlance across the world now, so I thought we might need to look for a broader definition. The one I've chosen is from Wai Honchu and Colin Levat from The Dumpling, A Seasonal Guide. They say a dumpling is a portion of dough, batter or starchy plant fare, solid or filled, that is cooked through wet heat and is not a strand or a ribbon. I mean, that doesn't actually apply to our traditional baked apple dumpling normally, but I managed to find an apple dumpling recipe by Hannah Glass, or at least in her book, which is not necessarily the same thing at all, from 1751 for a boiled apple dumpling, so all is well. Having mentioned that it's a very huge topic with a very long history, I thought I might need to focus on the dumplings of a particular country, and I think Italy. Well, in our modern content of it, it's a united country anyway. It's a good choice, especially as that's where our first story was from. In the interest of transparency, I will visit some other countries later in order to look at the folklore of dumplings. See, I hadn't forgotten. I'd just like to get British suet dumplings out of the way first. They are wonderful, filling and yet still fluffy, cooked in rich stew where they steam in the savoury sense of the flavours and broth, absorbing some of it through their bottom sides, which is submerged in the tasty liquid. 
I imagine that Delia Smith and even Jamie Oliver have excellent recipes. I use the one on the side of the Atora packet. It always works perfectly, especially if you take my nan's advice to handle them as little and as lightly as possible before adding them to the stew or casserole. If I'm feeling a little bit fancy, sometimes I add herbs or a smidge of English mustard powder. The first actual recipe for a dumpling appears in A New Present for a Servant Maid, containing her moral conduct, which is dubiously attributed to Eliza Fowler Haywood, who wrote a book of a similar name, but it appears highly unlikely, as they're very different books. I suspect a completely different Mrs Haywood wrote our cookery book. The literary style is very different to that of Eliza Fowler Haywood, who was a novelist and playwright, and died 15 years before the cookbook was published. Okay, where was I? Sorry, Italian dumplings. It's going to be some controversy here, it can't be helped. Italian regions are rightly very proud of their culinary outputs and they don't like them to be misidentified. So I'm probably going to get some Italian people a little bit miffed. I'm also only going to mention Marco Polo once. To mention that the series he brought pasta back to Italy from China is highly unlikely, considering there are cookbooks containing pasta recipes long before he travelled for the first time. There are several series about how filled pasta and filled dumplings travel from their place of origin across the world. The Silk Road plays a big part in some of them, the Mongols in others. One is China-centric, and one believes that filled pasta originated in the Middle East, around Turkey, and travelled outward with their traders. There are some really interesting papers and books about this, which, I've, again, I've listed in further reading. We may never know. Humans seem to be better at recording wars than dinner. Let's hope future archaeological research will solve the mystery. So, we'll start in Italy by mentioning gnocchi. Made of a potato dough without filling, they're very popular in the north of Italy. They're a cousin, in a way, to the canardelli, which are very popular in the Tyrol. So popular, in fact, they appear in medieval frescoes at the chapel of Castel d'Apiano near Bolzano in northern Italy. I quote, The type of dumpling represented in the fresco is canardelli, a large ball of dough made of stale bread and milk with the addition of bacon, beetroot, fresh cheese, spinach, mushrooms, or even fruit, ricotta cheese and sugar, boiled in broth or water from Dumplings by Barbara Galliani. Filled pasta in Italy appears to exist earlier than most people think. I read an encyclopedia of pasta, so you don't have to. I might be exaggerating a little. I definitely went straight to the stuffed pasta sections due to time constraints, but I can't wait to go back to look at the other sections. Pasta is fascinating as well as tasty. The information collected by Zanini De Vita is that while stuffed pastas are associated with the kitchens of the courts of northern Italy of the 1500s, the probable first written source appears in Liber de Ferculis of Giambonino de Comorona that has an Arabic recipe for a sambusage, which is a triangular piece of pasta filled with meat. This recipe is from around 1100, so I suppose 1100. This document appears in the appendix of probably the most medieval cookbook found, entitled Liber de Cochina, which dates from around 1285 to 1304. So, it looks suspiciously like Sicily, had the first filled pasta recipe in Italy. And there are significant seafaring links between Sicily and Genoa, which is the area which prides itself on the origin of the ravioli. I'm just going to leave that there and progress to the fact that it was during the 12th century that a square dumpling made of a filling sealed between two layers of a thin pasta started appearing in Genoa and spread to Parma and Venice and then out to other regions of Central Europe where filled dumplings are still very popular. They were so popular at medieval training fairs and different fillings and shapes started to appear. The fairs held in Genoa Harbour were very popular with sailors and food spread out from there across the Mediterranean. They became popular among the courts of various regions of Italy and were famous enough to appear in the Decameron by Giovanni Braccaccio in 1353. 
The book is structured as a frame story containing a hundred tales told by a group of seven young women and three young men as they shelter in a secluded villa just outside Florence in order to escape the Black Death, which was affecting the city. One of the tales contains a fantastic land as described. And in those parts there was a mountain made entirely of grated parmesan cheese on whose slopes there were people who spent their whole time making macaroni and ravioli, which they cooked in chicken broth, and then cast it to the four winds, and the faster you could pick it up, the more you got of it. And not far away, there was a stream of vernacular wine, the finest that was ever drunk without a single drop of water in it. Giovanni Boccaccio, The Decameron, Eighth Day, Third Story. There are also recipes for ravioli in an anonymous Tuscan cookery book from four, around 1400 and in Libro di Cucina or Libro Percoco, 14th, 15th century. Anonimo Veneziano, so from Venice, amongst others. Definitions of what exactly each shape was started to appear from 1612 and different versions developed in different regions. Some even developed without the pasta wrapping. Tuscany still has a ravioli nudi. Ravioli and other filled pasta dumplings have not got any less popular in fact, they started to be made by the middle classes and then working people, and as travel to Europe became more accessible, their popularity has continued to grow with travellers and the Italian diaspora across the world. It's more usual across the north of Italy, but there are southern Italian versions. Sicily, in fact, is one of the places where filled pasta dumplings are less common than their dried pasta cousins. They do exist, however, but are more likely to be filled with a cosset or aged sheep cheeses, sometimes with greens or herbs, dressed with olive oil or a sweet tomato sauce, balanced with wild fennel. So that's what you can picture our heroine eating with her friends as our story starts. Did you know that there was folklore about dumplings? I can't mention it all, or this would have to be a two-part episode at the very least. There are even two stories to explain the shape of tortellini. One suggests that an attempted peeping Tom of an innkeeper looked in at Lucretia Borgia, the femme fatale illegitimate daughter of Pope Alexander VI, through a keyhole when she was getting changed, but all he could see was her belly button. He was so inspired by her gorgeous belly button that he invented tortellini in her honour. That must have been some navel. The second story is supposedly more ancient and contradicts the current version of the history of filled pasta, but suggests Venus and Jupiter feasted at near Bologna, and after one drinky, too many stayed over in a shared room. And the innkeeper, another peeping Tom, peered through the keyhole, but could only see Venus's belly button, and then created a filled pasta shape. I suppose if anyone was going to have a gorgeous navel, then Venus would be that woman. The other folklore about dumplings, which I found fascinating, concerns Ukrainian Varenki, which you might know better by their Polish name, Pierogi. The magical function ascribed to Varenki is further evident from ritual behaviour observed in the Padilla region. The head of the household would clasp a loaf of bread on his arm, sprinkle the courtyard and cattle with water blessed during the feast of the baptism of Christ, then inscribe a small cross on all the doors with chalk, while the children followed him carrying a bowl full with pear Varenki to ensure that the cattle would be as full as these Varenki. The plump dumplings function as a sympathetic magic, imitating the hoped-for pregnancy of domestic animals and women of the household. The pregnant or full hip shape of the pears would seem to explain the specific use of this filling in this context. There are also superstitions attached to Palmeni, Russian dumplings, which share some significant similarities with Varenki and Pierogi, but are much smaller than Polish Pierogi tend to be. I learned the following from Siberian staff, a profusion of Palmeni, Sharon Hudgens part of the Proceedings of the Oxford Symposium on Food and Cookery 2012, Wrapped and Stuffed Foods. Whenever some of the dumpling dough is left over, many cooks make a surprise parmen or two with a totally different filling, cheese, mushrooms, whatever, which is cooked in the same pot with a regular parmeni. Whoever finds a surprise dumpling in his or her portion at the table will have good luck. 
It is said that in Tsarist times, the royal cooks were instructed to hide Prussian stones within certain palmetti served to the Tsar's guests. Similarly, some cooks hide a button, a ring, a coin or a garlic clove inside a palman, along with a regular filling, again as a predictor of good luck for whoever finds it. Certain surprise palmetti fillings supposedly predict specific futures too. A coin means wealth, sugar means a successful year, greens bring you joy and a dumpling of solid dough brings you luck. In the virgin region of Perm, young maidens would get together to make palmini with a variety of different fillings, which were all cooked together in the same pot. Each palmen filling carried its own prediction about the future. A palmen filled with flour for told marriage to a rich husband, a meat filling meant an easy life, whereas a black pepper filling meant a hard one, and a palmen stuffed with wool predicted a happy life sometime much later in the future. Their dreams have their meanings too. Before going to sleep, Tartar girls in the Perm region would eat palmeni filled with salt. Whoever appeared in their dreams to drink water would become that girl's fiancé. If someone dreams that he's sitting at a table with a large portion of palmeni, he'll soon meet old friends. If a person dreams of making palmeni himself, it means he's alone in life or lacking the comfort of a family. If a young woman dreams that she has made bad lumpings that stick together or fall apart, it means her boyfriend has picky eating habits and will criticise all her cooking. I've barely scratched the surface of the history and folklore of dumplings in Europe, and I haven't even begun to look properly at Russia, China, India, Japan, Korea, the mainland and maritime countries of Southeast Asia, Central Asia, Western Asia, Africa, or both North and South America. I hope you feel I've done justice to Italy at least, although thinking about it, I have been very ravioli focused, and I haven't even mentioned the many types of unstuffed dumplings, or touched on the contributions of the Sephardi Jewish community to fillings for those some of those pasta dumplings, which is significant. The Encyclopedia of Pasta by Aretta Zanini De Vita, or The A to Z of Pasta by Rachel Roddy, and The Book of Jewish Food by Claudia Rodin, or The Food of Italy by Claudia Rodin, will fill in some gaps if you'd like to find out more. If you're still here, would you like our recipe? It's for Varenki pierogi. I made them at Christmas while I was recovering from Covid. We'd gone over the number of days where it was likely our condition would suddenly deteriorate to needing hospitalisation, and the fear was starting to subside. When we felt like eating, we'd been living off the contents of an M&S Christmas hopper and various items of cheese and charcuterie, and I felt a desperate need to make something that would feel like it was nourishing. There sadly wasn't a chicken in the house for soup, and I didn't want to risk infecting a delivery driver. I made my own farmer's cheese for this, with some milk of dubious date, and went ahead. The steaks took me about two days, as I felt quite poorly still, but without Covid, I think a long afternoon would do it. The recipe, of course, is with a blog post that accompanies this podcast on hesierskitchen.co.uk. It should be the first post as you go to folklore, fairy tales and food from the menu. It's also there that you can find previous episodes also and you can also find the recipes which I rarely speak out loud on the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode you could review this on Apple Podcasts. Apparently it really helps other people to find the podcast or you could get in touch with me via via Twitter or Instagram where I am at fairy tales feed. I know it's been a really difficult year So I hope the stories or the chat or even the recipes have helped a little. So that's all for now. Don't forget the bonus episode with a wonderful Amy Douglas, storyteller. Amy is absolutely fantastic and even tells a short story herself during her interview. That's all for now. I hope you've really enjoyed this episode and it's lovely to be back and hope to see you next time on Folklore, Food and Fairy Tales.